Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, let's start tonight with what seems an almost obligatory discussion of COVID-19. New research by the CDC suggests that two masks are better than one. They found that one mask blocked around 40% of particles coming towards a head that was breathing in. When a cloth mask was worn on top of a surgical mask, however, about 80% was blocked. And when the exhaling and inhaling heads were both double masked, more than 95% were blocked, according to the CDC's Dr. John Brooks. But as we know, the challenge is really just to increase compliance with any mask at all. The first challenge is to get as many people as possible masking, and then for those that do mask, to help them get the best benefit out of that mask, Brooks said. Now, the study did have some large limitations as they only used one type of surgical mask and one type of cloth mask. However, other research has also suggested that two masks are better than one. The ideal combination is a surgical mask under a tight-fitting cloth mask. Now, you can also use a KN95 mask. Those are a little bit easier to find than the N95s, and they're not quite as good, but they will still definitely work to reduce your chance of contracting COVID-19. And you may know that UMass Amherst has recently had to cancel all in-person classes and basically lock down on-campus students after their infection rate began to skyrocket. So there is definitely an active population of COVID-19 spreaders in the area, and we know that it's also spreading across most of the country, especially as the UK variant and other more contagious variants begin to overtake others. So we definitely need to continue to be vigilant. All right, let's take a moment now to talk about the World Health Organization investigation into the origins of the virus itself. The team has rejected the conspiracy theory that the virus escaped from a lab and are focusing on animals and frozen food. They've reinforced the initial hypothesis that the virus passed from a still as yet unknown intermediate animal host, which moved the virus from a distant reservoir host, something like the horseshoe bat, for instance, in order to infect humans. So it would have come from the horseshoe bat and then from an intermediary that they still haven't figured out and then to humans, though the horseshoe bat has not been positively implicated either. And so unfortunately, they are no closer to finding that culprit. They tested 11,000 animals around the country, but all tested negative for SARS-CoV-2. The picture we see is a very classic picture of the start of an emerging outbreak. Peter Ben Embarek, the WHO international team lead, said, 
where we start with a few sporadic cases early on in the month of December, and then we start to see small outbreaks where the disease starts to spread in clusters. And so, again, they found that the initial idea that the virus spread from seafood markets, it turns out, is actually less likely, as there were cases before this cluster began, and that it's more likely that it was simply a convenient center for spread. And so they do know that um, once the uh, COVID became um, a problem, they did find a lot of residue of uh, COVID-19 in these markets. Now, the Chinese government, for its role, continues to hold out hope that the virus may have been imported on frozen food and thus absolved them of some of the responsibility. The WHO team is actually skeptical of this possibility. Moving forward, the research needs to continue to, quote, connect the dots and connect the different pieces of information to try to get a better understanding of this whole picture, Embarek said, and that we need to do this while not limiting ourselves to any preconceived ideas and just following all the leads, following the science, following well-designed and conducted studies. And so some of us might be wondering, why are we spending so much time on this when what we really need to be focusing on is curing the active disease? Now, of course, you can do both at the same time, but this is important because information that can be gained from this investigation will potentially aid in future outbreaks of novel diseases, of which we know there will be more. All right, let's move on now and talk about what's frankly kind of a quirky little story um, or bit of research about nonstick pans. If you're like me, you're always annoyed that there is a spot in the pan which sticks. A new study in the physics of fluids begins. Here, the phenomenon of food sticking when frying in a frying pan is experimentally explained. Alexander Fedorchenko and Jan Hruby, specialists in fluid dynamics and thermophysics from the Czech Academy of Sciences, explain that the culprit is thermocapillary convection. The researchers tested two pans, one ceramic and one with a Teflon coating. They covered each with a thin layer of sunflower oil and then filmed the pans as they were heated. They found that a temperature gradient developed across the oil, which in turn created a surface tension gradient, which then pulled the oil from the middle towards the sides of the pan. They note that this created the quote, formation of a dry spot in the thin sunflower oil film, according to the study. And they give advice on how to avoid this problem. To avoid unwanted dry spot formation, the following set of measures and or should be applied. Increasing the oil film thickness, moderate heating, and completely wetting the surface of the pan with oil. Using a pan with a thick bottom, stirring food regularly during cooking, the authors write. Now, of course, you may be thinking, as I did, 
Well, this is all pretty standard information for the even vaguely competent cook. And it's frankly not the only thing that can cause food itself to stick, as there are other chemical reactions that can affect the performance of a nonstick pan. But it is good to know that science is quantifying our everyday annoyances, <laughs> because that is really annoying. Um, when I try and make eggs in my frying pan, I can never use the middle because it just refuses to uh, stay covered in oil. Now, I'd actually personally recommend antique cast iron if you can find it or carbon steel. I don't currently have any carbon steel, unfortunately, but I would like some. Um, it's apparently very good. Okay. Let's move on now and talk about the ever-popular Venus flytrap. It turns out that when you take a jaw, or the specialized leaf of the plant used to catch insects, and shut it into a chamber that dampens magnetic noise, it will register its own magnetic field as it tries to shut the trap. Even when using only one side of the trap leaf, the field was measured by an atomic mag magnetometer, which detects a change in magnetic fields in the spin of electrons. The novelty here is that we show magnetic fields from a multicellular plant system, specifically action potentials from, multi from multicellular plant systems. Anne Fabricant, an atomic physicist at Helmholtz University in Mainz, Germany, said in a video call, and also that we use atomic magnetometers because the previous two experiments were done with a different kind of magnetic magnetometer. And so previous studies have found magnetic fields in other plants, such as algae and bean plants. And they were measured by magnetometers called squids, which are large and require low temperatures to run. And so the team wanted to use another kind of detector in this case. Now, to be clear, the plants are not creating a field by moving necessarily, but rather the action potential that leads to the plants move. Fields can be created when a plant is wounded or, in the case of the flytrap, trying to reach food. And as noted, the field was generated by a single side of one trap. And so the team achieved this um, action potential by increasing the heat in the room in order to mimic the same action potential which occurs when the trap is trying to feed. The action of potential coursing through the plant caused the rubidium atoms in the sensors to change their rotation, indicating the presence of a magnetic field. Now, what was going on in this experiment was not so much about the fact that the field existed, that was expected. Rather, it was to test how the field could be measured. The field they were trying to measure is about a million times weaker than Earth's magnetic field. Because of this, the researchers needed to seek out a space which dampened that field in order to be able to actually measure this tiny, tiny change. 
if the field were too small, then we wouldn't be able to measure it with our sensors, Fabricant noted, adding that if more than one field was produced and those fields happened to be in opposite directions, they would cancel out when we tried to measure the whole trap. There was a big risk that we would just measure zero. Luckily, they were able to measure a field of 0.5 picotesla amplitude. And so part of the interesting thing here is that this is the most complex plant yet to be tested. And so the researchers, again, wanted a proof of principle that ion channels in plants work similarly to electrical activity causing action potentials in animal nervous systems. And so they both explored the detection of the magnetic field using this new kind of magnetometer, as well as the thermal properties of those ion channels that were the source of the action potential. They suggest that magnetometry may be used in the future to study long distance electrical signaling in plants, as well as potentially leading to the development of non-invasive diagnostics of plant stress and disease. So if you have this kind of action potential that is actually able to be um, measured, then you can learn more about what's going on in the plant and because this doesn't require actually destroying the plant, even though they did pull the leaf off in this case, it's still um, potentially helpful in the future. Okay, let's leave the Venus flytrap and talk about yams. Now, the first thing to note about yams are that they are not equivalent to sweet potatoes. They are a completely different plant, with yams being much starchier and drier. Yams are native to Africa and Asia. They're uh, actually a staple crop for West Africa, but there has been limited research on improving their genetic diversity or yield. Researcher Shinsuke Yamanaka has been working on improving crop breeding resources for yams. He recently published in the journal Crop Science, where he details how he is creating a library of information for future yam breeders. There are more than 600 species of yam, but the researchers focused on the white guinea yam because it is an important cash crop. Farmers in tropical and subtropical Africa rely on this not very easy to grow crop for their livelihoods. The tubers can take up to 11 months before they are ready to harvest. They also have male and female flowers on separate plants, which makes it difficult to actually time pollination properly for them to successfully breed. The long growth cycle, inconsistency in flower between, flowering between plants, and polyploidy are major limitations of the yam breeding study, explains Yamanaka. Now, polyploidy means that they actually have more than two sets of chromosomes. And so, despite the fact that we have the two sets and most animals have two sets, many plants have more than two sets, with strawberries, in fact, featuring eight sets of chromosomes. 
Now, more in-depth research can help with breeding new varieties to increase yield, improve cooking properties, and decrease harvest time, which would all be beneficial for the farmers who rely on these crops. And so the team used a modern approach to breeding the crops. Instead of painstakingly growing different plants and waiting to see what kinds are best for parent varieties, the team used genetic markers from plants in the quote-unquote yam belt of West Africa. They used DNA markers for certain traits to anticipate how the plants would grow and what features they'd have. They used plant material from over 400 yam plants to create an initial genetic library of the most distinct plants. They were then able to reduce that library by getting rid of all of the very similar plants and were able to get it down to 100 yam plants, which were found to be unique. They also tracked important characteristics of the plants, such as the number of stems per plant, growth period, number of tubers per plant, yield, and tuber weight. The new research creates a mini core collection, which is similar to those available for rice, millet, and palm. It will be easier to maintain and to use in producing new and better varieties more quickly than in the traditional method of letting all the plants grow to see what they are like and then picking the best ones, which you then go on to breed again and again and again. Although our research is just the beginning of better utilization of the wide genetic diversity in yams, we hope our research will pave the way to improving yam breeding for farmers, said Yamanaka. Now, just to be clear, this is not genetic engineering in the sense of uh, GMOs. This is simply using the genetic information about the yams in order to better tell which varieties should be used as breeding stock. Now, of course, there wouldn't be anything wrong if they were actually using GMO because this is an incredibly important cash crop and a staple food for people in this area. And I know that a lot of people uh, are still very hesitant about genetically modified foods, but I would remind you as always that there is nothing inherently wrong with the process. What people are worried about, and not unrightly so uh, in the extreme, is that the corporations that often are employing these methods are not great people or great corporations. Well, I would argue, of course, that no cop corporation is a good corporation, but um, I think it's very important, once again, that we're very clear to distinguish between a completely useful scientific process that can help people who are in need have better access to the foods that are staples for them and to prevent things like a food that we're all used to going extinct, as was the case uh, potentially with papayas in Hawaii, and the sort of uh, terrible business practices 
of these businesses. And so it's really important to kind of try and keep those two things distinct in your mind because genetically modified foods are no more dangerous than foods that have been crossbred, have uh, had irradiation employed on them, and a bunch of other ways in which foods that we eat today have been manipulated and nobody worries about that. And so I think that because these corporations have not necessarily shown themselves to be, you know, great friends of the earth necessarily, um, and of course are basically capitalist entities, which means that their actual, uh, the sort of thing that they're most beholden to is their shareholders over anything else. I understand that. And I understand that that is scary, but I just, every time I buy something and it has a non GMO label, it just makes me sad and angry, uh, especially on things that don't actually have a genetically modified uh, counterpart so, for instance, my tuna says non-GMO. I actually switched uh, my brand because I didn't want to support that. Um, and so there's no current tuna fish that are being uh, created using genetic modifications. And so there's no reason for that. I mean, the famous joke is that you can actually buy, for instance, Himalayan sea salt that says it is non-GMO. Well, sea salt is not an organic compound. And so it is not derived from an animal or a uh, plant. And therefore, there is no way that it could be genetically modified. And so I think that people have really, really blown um, genetically modified uh, food out of proportion. And again, I am all for being anti-capitalist. I am all for not trusting large corporations, but that doesn't mean that the actual scientific practice itself is not worthy or is suspicious. And so it can really be used well in places like Africa where uh, yields can be low and a lot of people are subsistence farmers. And, you know, there's also obviously the worry about monoculture, but that's, again, a separate issue. It's not, you know, the, the problems with monoculture are not inherent to genetically modified organisms. We have plenty of monoculture uh, crops that are that have been developed using conventional quote unquote um, breeding practices. And so I think it's really important to remember to keep these things separate and not to panic about genetic modification because we can do really good things with it. And I just I worry some days that we are losing the fight on GMOs and that people are really just succumbing to the hysteria. And that makes me worried because as we have climate change increasing and as we have a host of other um, problems with pollution and things like that, 
we're going to need the tools that can help us create plants and animals that are better able to cope with this change and are better able to support the human population. And so I think it's really, really important that we make sure that we are separating scientific practices that are morally neutral at best, if not morally good, from the corporations that may exploit them. And so, yeah, I haven't talked about GMOs in a while, so I hope that you uh, indulge me in having a moment of reminder about the fact that they are not frankenfood, that they are not uh, inherently bad, that they are simply another technique that has been used in order to breed new and better forms of food. And as we create more technological advances, we should use those advances. And I think that we really get caught up in this sort of uh, fantasy of nature and we need to be vigilant because a lot of good can be done with genetically modified foods. And if the campaigns against them prevent that, that is going to be a moral tragedy. Um, and so I, you know, it can seem like hyperbole, but it really isn't. We need to invest in genetically modified uh plants and animals in order to feed the world. And that's just all there is to it. And if companies are shying away from investing in them because of people in the Western world who have the privilege to uh, be able to spend extra money on organic food and things like that, if they're preventing companies from investing in this, that is a moral problem, um, in my opinion. And I think we need to be really careful about that. Okay, so that is my soapbox for this week. And uh, we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And then we're going to talk, come back and we're going to talk about the creationist's favorite fish, the coelacanth. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. 
clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And once again, we are, you are listening to evidence-based radio. And we are going to move on from sequencing yams to sequencing the DNA of the coelacanth. And so I mentioned it was the creationist favorite fish. So if you don't know, when a coelacanth was caught off the coast of South Africa in 1938, it was hailed as a living fossil because it resembled most closely a species that was found in the fossil record and that had been assumed to be extinct for millions of years. And so it became a symbol for creationists who used it to argue that evolution wasn't true. Well, new research suggests that, unsurprisingly, evolution is very much real, and that despite looking much like its fossil cousin, the modern coelacanth is distinctly different. The paper, published in Molecular Biology and Evolution, explains that at least one of the two living species, Latimeria chalumnae, has acquired dozens of new genes in the past 23 million years. And so coelacanths are lobed fin fish, which can reach up to 6 feet 6 inches and weigh around 200 pounds. They are estimated to live for 60 years or more and are larger than those found in the fossil record. They have eight fins, large eyes, and a small mouth. They have those large eyes because they live in deep water and are nocturnal drift hunters of smaller fish. 
Isaac Yellen, first author of the new study and a graduate student with the Department of Molecular Genetics at the University of Toronto, explains that they are not particularly aggressive and somewhat social. Now, this particular species lives in the Indian Ocean and waters off the coast of Southeast Africa and is both elusive and unfortunately critically endangered. Yellen and his colleagues were researching proteins that bind DNA, focusing on a protein called CGG binding protein 1 or CGG BP1. While this protein has been studied in humans, its role in evolutionary history and its apparent similarity to a specific family of transposons, DNA sequences capable of moving within the genome, is not well studied. The team started to look at binding proteins in various species and came at some point to the elusive fish. The African coelacanth came into the picture when we started looking for CGGBPs, again, these are DNA binding proteins, in published genomes, and found that it had 62 CGGBP genes, way more than any other vertebrate, explained Yellen. We then started to look into where this large gene family might have come from. Transposons like this are often considered parasitic genes, which seek only to replicate themselves. But it turns out that some transposons can actually influence function. Having 62 of them made the researchers suspect that at least some of them must have functions in the animal. Transposons are, as noted, often parasitic and can be very harmful if they disrupt genes, but they sometimes do form cooperative relationships with their hosts, said Yellen. There are many different ways this can occur. Sometimes they lose their ability to replicate, which their host can then take advantage of, as is the case with CGGBP1. So basically, what's happening in the coelacanth is that the transposons have ceased to replicate, but they've been retained in the genome because they are actually beneficial in their expression. And so it turns out that this is basically another way that animals can, can evolve, an alternative form of mutation and selection. I'd also want to point out the transposons we studied are no longer able to jump around in the coelacanth genome, he added. What remain are dead, quote, fossils of their own and the CGGBP genes. And so they haven't yet determined exactly what the 62 transposons are doing, but they suggest that they have a role in gene regulation. And so they're not actually coding for proteins themselves, but they are having an effect on genes that do code for proteins. They also found related genes in the genomes of other animals, but the distribution of these genes suggests an outside infusion. Some of the transpones, transposons are acquired through interactions with other species, including distantly related species via horizontal gene transfer. 
one way that transposons can be picked up and carried between species is through a parasitic intermediary host, such as a lamprey, which feeds on the blood of fish, said Yellen. This is supported by the fact that we found one of these transposons in a lamprey species, although we don't know if coelacanth received it from the lamprey or vice versa. And importantly, the genes have appeared at various points during the past 22.3 million years, which they determined by compare, comparing their DNA to that of the Indonesian coelacanth, Latimeria menandonensis, and measured the changes after their split at 22.3 million years ago. Yellen and his colleagues suggest that the concept of living fossils needs to be retired. Animals such as the lungfish and tuatara, an animal that resembles the ancestor of snakes and lizards, have active genomes that evolve. They just evolve at a slower pace than many other animals. Coelacanths, for instance, have few predators and seemingly a comfortable niche which doesn't require a lot of quick evolutionary changes. Previous research has found that while coelacanth genes have evolved slowly compared to that, compared to other fish, reptiles, and mammals, its genome as a whole has not evolved abnormally slowly and is hardly inert, said Yellen. I think that as more and more genomes are being published, the living fossil concept is becoming increasingly something of a misconception. And I think many scientists would probably hesitate to assign it to any species, he added. Okay, let's move on to dry land now and talk about a more ubiquitous animal, pigs. And this is a uh, story from one of my favorite subjects. It will, again, challenge you to think differently about human uniqueness. It turns out that since the late 1990s, scientists have been having pigs complete computerized tasks. However, until now, no peer-reviewed research on these experiments has been published. The new paper is published in the journal Frontiers of Psychology, and they found that despite constraints on dexterity and vision, the animals were able to both understand and achieve goals in simple computer games. What they were able to do is perform well above chance at hitting these targets, said Candace Crony, director of Purdue University's Center for Animal Welfare Science and lead author of the paper in a phone call to Gizmodo, and well enough above chance that it is very clear that they have some conceptual understanding of what they were being asked to do. The research is the culmination of 20 years of labor, beginning when Crony worked at Purdue University with the pig researcher Stanley Curtis. The project involved four pigs, two Yorkshire pigs named Hamlet and Omelette, and two Penapinto micropigs, Ebony and Ivory. The pigs were tasked with moving a cursor to a lit area on the computer screen, and apparently they loved doing it. This is perhaps because initially they received M&Ms as a reward, though this was later switched to dog food, which they also apparently really enjoy. They begged to play video games, Curtis told the AP in 1997. They begged to be the first ones out of their pens. Then they trot up the ramp to play. 
and it was not easy for the pigs physically. The joystick had been designed for primates, so the pigs had to use their snouts and mouths to move the cursor. All four were farsighted, so the monitor had to be placed at an optimal distance for the pigs to be able to see the game. In addition, the Yorkshire pigs were bred to grow fast, and as they got heavier, they couldn't stay on their feet for very long. They clearly understood the connection between their own behavior, the joystick, and what was happening on the screen. Lori Marino, a neuroscientist who directs the Whale Sanctuary Project and is unaffiliated with the current paper, noted, it really is a testimony testament to their cognitive flexibility and ingenuity that they were able to find ways to manipulate the joystick despite the fact that the test setup was often difficult for them to engage with physically. What makes these findings even more important is that the pigs in this study displayed self-agency, Marino added, which is the ability to recognize that one's own actions make a difference. And so the pigs were taught to do several tasks similar to dogs. They were taught to sit, come, wait outside, wait outside their pen when it needed cleaning and to fetch their toys. At a certain point, they were getting really good at getting their toys and not so good at cleaning up after themselves, Crony said. I was becoming pretty much a pig daycare worker, going around and sorting them out. And so then we started teaching them to put things back. And the pigs all ended up having a happy life, which is very, very happy as far as I'm concerned. Hamlet and Omelette were adopted by the owners of a bed and breakfast and lived out their lives on a farm. Ebony and Ivory eventually retired to a children's zoo. Crony actually says that years after the experiment was over, she went to visit Hamlet, who galloped towards her at the sound of her voice because he was so happy to see her. So dogs may be man's best friend, but only because pigs are, well, frankly, prey animals and not predators, I feel. Um, and of course, every time I make one of these, right, read about one of these stories, it makes me feel bad for eating pork, though I haven't yet been able to give it up, I will admit. Okay, so as much as we should give pigs more due, let us move on and talk once again about dogs. So, as with the non-stick study, the next story might seem very much self-evident to those of us who own dogs. I know when I mentioned it to my boyfriend, he immediately said, well, yeah, but it's important to study things even that seem self-evident. This is all to say that a new study suggests that pet owners, or that pet dogs, excuse me, are more likely to play with one another when their owner is present and paying attention, which suggests that they may be performing for our benefit. It's pretty well established that dogs are attuned to the level of interest humans show in them, notes Lindsay Meckram, an animal behaviorist and lead author of the paper that appeared in Animal Cognition. But we weren't aware of any research that had really shown the effect of a human audience impacting species typical behavior. In this case, dog-dog play. And so the research involved 10 pairs of pet dogs that had lived together for at least six months. 
According to their owners, they engaged in play at least once a day. The researchers filmed the dog pairs under three conditions. When the owner was absent, when the owner was present but ignoring them, and when the owner was present and being attentive to them with verbal praise and petting. They ran each condition three times over the course of several days. The researchers found that the availability of the owner's attention absolutely affects their level of play. It's really quite striking that dogs who have the chance to play with each other whenever they want nonetheless are much more likely to get up off of their butts and start playing when a person is just paying attention to them, said co-author Clive Wynn of Arizona State University. The research suggests the dogs may be seeking the owner's attention as a reward, like young children who want to show off for their parents. They may also learn that playing in front of their owner will lead to the owner joining in the fun or taking them outside. Or it might provide a sense of security as play can escalate into aggression and having a human around can help ensure against an actual fight. Finally, it might be that the presence of their owner leads to a rush of oxytocin, which leads to positive emotional states, which in turn turns into play. It's one of those types of studies that leads to a lot more questions than answers, said Meckram adding she, would, she was working on untangling the various threads and ongoing experiments. But regardless of the reason, it's a very real phenomenon that will continue to, frankly, delight dog owners. And in other dog news, researchers at Uppsala University and the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences have built a new and more complete dog reference genome. The researchers used new methods for DNA sequencing an annotation and have created a tool that will serve as the foundation for future research, which will help scientists to better understand the link between DNA and disease in both dogs and humans. And so dogs have been an important comparison to humans since both genomes were released in the early 2000s. A comparison of the two along with two other genomes showed that the human genome contains around 20,000 genes, down from 100,000 predicted prior to the actual work. The new study, published in the journal Communications Biology, identifies missing genes and highlights regions of the genome that regulate when these genes are turned on or off. The genome used as a reference to add to the existing information was Mishka, a 12-year-old German shepherd who was found to be free of genetic diseases. The research was led by Dr. Jennifer Meadows and Professor Kirsten Lindblad-Toe, who note that the move from short to long read technology in DNA sequencing uh, increased the level of precision reducing the number of genome gaps from over 23,000 to down to just 585. We can think of the genome as a book, says Meadows. In the previous assembly, many words and sometimes whole sentences were in the wrong order or even missing. 
Long read technology allowed us to read whole paragraphs at once, greatly improving our comprehension of the genome. Additional tools which measure the DNA's 3D structure allowed us to place the paragraphs in order, adds Dr. Chow Wang, first author of the study. Now, you might be asking, why would the dog genome help with studying diseases in humans? Well, as we've talked about extensively, humans and domestic dogs have lived alongside each other for at least 10,000 years. And we actually suffer from a lot of similar diseases, including neurological and immunological diseases, as well as cancer. The improved canine genome assembly will be of great importance and use in canine comparative medicine, where we study diseases in dogs. For example, osteosarcoma, systematic lup lupus erythematosus, or SLE, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, with the goal of helping both canines and human health, says Linbad Toll. Now, the researchers concluded that they believe that the catalogs generated there, based on the uh, GSD 1.0 framework of genetic research, will propel the comparison of canine and human genetic diseases forward by leaps and bounds. So that's pretty impressive, and in some ways allows dogs to give back to their masters for all those treats and pets. And while dogs are pretty awesome, I am a cat owner, and so let's take a minute to talk about new research that suggests giving your cat better nutrition and playing with them more will reduce the incidence of outdoor cats bringing home gifts, quote unquote, of prey. Researchers in the UK enlisted 355 cats from 219 households in England, chosen for their habitat of bringing home prey. All cats were observed for seven weeks before the experiment began to establish a baseline. Then, over five weeks, the cat owners were asked to change their habits by altering one of the following things. Their diet, toys, and using such devices meant to keep cats away from prey, such as collars with bells or those that are brightly colored to allow birds to spot them more easily. A subset was also left to their own devices as a control group. Cats that were given high-quality, protein-rich diets with a high meat-to-grain ratio decreased their rate of bringing home quote-unquote gifts by 36%. In the play group involving the owners using feather wands or most-sized toys for five to minutes a day with the cat led to a reduction of 25% and the use of brightly colored collars reduced predation of birds by 42%, but unfortunately had no effect on other small animal prey. Cat bells, interestingly, had no significant effect. And even more interestingly, puzzle feeders actually increased the level of hunting, presumably because the cats got frustrated and decided to seek an easier source of food. But of course, the best way to keep cats from bringing home presents is to keep them indoors. My cats are absolutely indoor-only cats. Uh, 
It reduces the chances of them getting fleas and ticks, of being in fights, of getting diseases. It's just, as far as I'm concerned, much more healthy. But for those who insist that it's better for cats to have outdoor time, these results might help redu reduce any predatory action that may result. In managing predation by domestic cats, owner behavior is as important as cat behavior. And so, to reduce killing by cats, management strategies need to be both effective and implemented by owners, the authors wrote in their paper published in Current Biology. Positive interventions aimed at benefiting cats and appealing to owners can reduce cats' tendency to hunt and might therefore form the basis of a conservation win-win. And so the next steps for the researchers is to determine if the ratio can be even further reduced by combining interventions so they had each person do one thing. They also plan to see if diets with more grains have any micronutrients missing, which are then sought out as cats go out hunting. So that's really interesting. Okay, so let's switch now to talk about space. Astronomers have confirmed the orbit of the most distant object yet observed, yet observed in our solar system. The newly discovered planetoid is named is nicknamed Far Far Out. And so a team of astronomers, including Associate Professor Chad Trujillo of Northern Arizona University's Department of Astronomy and Planetary Sciences, have confirmed the object, which is almost four times further from the Sun than Pluto. The planetoid was first detected in 2018, and the team has now tracked enough observations to pin down the orbit of the newly minted 2018 AG37, which is its official designation uh, given to it by the Minor Planet Center. Now, Far Far Out's nickname references the previous record, hold record holder named Far Out which was found by the same team also in 2018. Other researchers include Scott S. Shepard of the Carnegie Institute for Science and David Tholen from the University of Hawaii Institute for Astronomy. And so the team are working on an ongoing survey to map the outer solar system beyond Pluto. Far, far out will be given an official name after its orbit has been more closely established. And so it was discovered by the Subaru 8-meter telescope located atop Mauna Kea in Hawaii. It, also, it was tracked using the Gemini North and Magellan telescopes in the last few years to work out its orbit based on its slow transit across the sky. And so the planetoid's orbit averages 132 astronomical units. And so one astronomical unit is the distance between the Sun and the Earth. For reference, Pluto is a mere 39 astronomical units from the Sun. Far, far out has an elongated orbit that takes it as far as 175 AU and as close as 27 AU inside the orbit of Neptune. 
and it takes around a thousand years to journey around the sun. The fact that the planetoid moves through the gravitational influence of Neptune has most likely aided in its extremely elongated orbit. A single orbit of far, far out around the sun takes a millennium, said Tholin. Because of this long orbital, it moves very slowly across the sky, requiring several years of observations to precisely determine its trajectory. And so it's also very faint, but based on its brightness and distance from the sun, the team estimates that it's about that it's just under 250 miles across, making it a small dwarf planet, which is assumed to be ice rich. The discovery of Far Far Out shows our increasing ability to map the outer solar system and observe farther and farther toward the fringes of our solar system, said Shepard. Only with the advancement in the last few years of large digital cameras on very large telescopes has it been possible to efficiently discover very far distance objects like far, far out. Even though some of these distant objects are quite large, being dwarf planet in size, they are very faint because of their extreme distances from the sun. Far, far out is just the tip of the iceberg of solar system objects in the very distant solar system. Now, unfortunately, far, far out because of its interactions with Neptune cannot tell us more about the possibility of a large planet X in the outer solar system. Right now, we're looking at objects like Sedna and 2012 VP113, which do come closer to the sun at around 80 AU, but do not come near Neptune, and thus will likely not be influenced by it. Far, far out's orbital dynamics can help us understand how Neptune formed and evolved, as far, far out was likely thrown into the outer solar system by getting too close to Neptune in the distant past, said Trujillo. Far, far out will likely strongly interact with Neptune again since their orbits continue to intersect. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. And thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.